Hello, I'm Lino Hamudu. Welcome to Health Chat. More than 1 billion people in the world suffer from these diseases, according to the World Health Organization, but they are not receiving proper attention. Schistosomiasis, Guruli ulcer, blinding trachoma and leprosy are some of the neglected tropical diseases or NTDs that affect the world's poorest population. Neglected tropical diseases are a diverse group of about 20 conditions that are mainly prevalent in tropical areas. NTDs affect the most vulnerable sections of the population, significantly influencing their quality of life. Let's listen to the story of a young woman in Mozambique who suffers from lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantiasis. It started with a little discomfort. As time went on, the discomfort got worse. It seemed like a simple thing that would get better with doctor's appointments and treatment. But it was lasting longer. Years went by, I kept getting treatment. I was admitted at the hospital, but so far no improvement. Angela, who prefers not to use her real name, suffers from lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantiasis, a neglected tropical disease transmitted by a mosquito bite which is characterized by swelling in some organs such as the arms, legs, breasts or testicles. According to the World Health Organization, NTDs affect more than a billion people in the world and 40% are living in Africa. There are common NTDs such as onchocerciasis that causes skin problems and blindness, schistosomiasis that mainly affects the urinary system and intestinal system, causing serious health issues that can lead to death. Another one is soil-transmitted helminths that reduce the body's ability to absorb nutrients and vitamins. And also trachoma, which can cause severe scarring of the inside of the eyelid, leading to permanent blindness. In Portuguese, we call them tropical diseases because they appear in the tropical climate. And we refer to them as neglected because they are diseases that can be prevented, treated, but they are closely linked to poverty. Therefore, they will affect the most disadvantaged population and will lead to disfigurement and loss of quality of life. Angela's days are not easy. I just get sad because of my limitations. I can't wear the clothes I want, I can't wear the shoes I want, and that makes me unhappy. Sometimes going out it's hard due to people's prejudice. The worst thing is that I can't face people in the street when they make those comments like, Oh, big leg. They make comments that hurt me. I get really sad. The disease develops slowly. There are some drugs to treat elephantiasis and surgery is another option. In the initial phase, before any swelling, the patient can get feverish, muscle pain. They will pass after some days. From the moment the patient gets infected to the moment of any swelling and other signs of elephantiasis, it can take a year or more to develop. 
World Health Organization data from 2016 shows that 14.0 million people got treatment for elephantiasis, but 20.2 million were still in need of it. In Maputo Central Hospital, this disease is the second highest reason for patient appointments for vascular problems, and despite the pandemic, the hospital has been able to respond to the demand. For Angela, the family support and hospital assistance have been fundamental to fight the disease she has been living with for 13 years. Every week she goes to the doctor and she feels optimistic. The dream of wearing the shoes she loves might be closer to coming true. For more insights on neglected tropical diseases, I spoke with Professor Francisca Mutapi, Professor in Global Health Infection and Immunity and Co-Director of the Global Health Academy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Take a listen. Professor Francisca Mutapi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. First of all, could you explain to us uh, what neglected tropical diseases are and why are they neglected? Neglected tropical diseases are a group of diseases that are caused by pathogens or parasites. They range from bacteria, viruses, and worms. And they affect about 1.7 billion people in the world. And they are called neglected because they are mostly diseases of the poor or they are associated with poverty. And so they have received less funding and less attention to try and control them. I always say, for example, one of the big diseases that I work on, which is called Bilharzia, caused by a parasitic worm, if you were to get all the children in the world who are infected by this disease to hold their hands end to end, they would encircle the world one and a half times. If I understand correctly, essentially they are neglected because there is not enough funding or is it because they are not spread beyond where they are endemic? So they are neglected mostly because they occur in poor countries, mostly in the tropics, where there really hasn't been a concerted effort to control them. They have also been neglected in terms of research, although we are now correcting that, and um, hopefully that will make a significant impact on the burden of these diseases. And speaking of burden, how much of a burden are NTDs in Africa and what impact do they have? Neglected tropical diseases are huge. They're the largest parasitic um, burden in, in Africa. So if we take just one of them, it is the second most important public health problem in Africa, second only to malaria. And this is um, Bilharzia that I was talking about beforehand. And the problem with these diseases is that they don't just have one clinical symptom. They don't just affect one um, organ. They affect the whole body. So you have some that cause blindness. You have some that cause physical disfigurement. I'm sure you've heard of elephantitis, where the limbs and parts of your body grow really, really large. Um, hence the name elephantitis. And if you take uh, schistosomiasis or bilharzia, it impacts on children's ability to learn in school. It reduces their ability to learn. It reduces their physical ability. It also reduces um, fertility in women. Uh, we have um, a version of that disease that affects the urogenital tract. So affects reproductive health, affects fertility. 
And it also, a lot of the parasitic worm infections will affect um, the health of pregnant women so that both the pregnant woman and the child that, that is born afterwards suffer health complications. And this is before we even get to the cancers that they use. So they're really insidious problems because they don't just have a single clinical sign. Are there some that are more common in Africa and perhaps have more negative impact? As I said, Bilharzia is the most prevalent, second only to malaria. And then we've got um, elephantitis. And then we've got, of course, trachoma that causes blindness. So these are just um, three of um, a huge number of these neglected tropical diseases we have in Africa. These diseases have been around for a long time. Ten years ago, the world committed to control, eliminate, or eradicate 10 neglected tropical diseases by 2020 and improve uh, the lives of over a billion people. And that was during the London Declaration. Talk to us about that. What improvements have been made since the London Declaration? You've touched on a soft spot for me there. I have been working on these diseases for 20 years. I have had areas of frustration when I really feel we could do more. Again, whenever I introduce these diseases, I always say these diseases are unnecessary because we have all the tools to really control them and eradicate them. So you know, on a bad day when I'm frustrated, I, I bang my head against the wall and say, why aren't we doing more? However, on a good day, which really there are more good days now, we see the impact that has been made by the global commitment from the London Declaration in 2012. And what happened then is a lot of stakeholders, governments, pharma, and development partners came together and said, we really have to do something about this. As you say, we need to start eliminating these diseases. And we've made significant progress. 10 years on, for example, 600,000 people no longer need treatment. We have eliminated some of these diseases in some of the African countries, for example, trachoma in, in the Gambia. And the fact that we've been able to eliminate a, a large number of these diseases in a lot of countries shows us that with the willpower and the commitment, we're perfectly capable of eliminating the rest of these diseases in the rest of the countries. Recently, the world gathered at, in Kigali, Rwanda, for the Kigali, the Kigali Declaration on NTDs. Uh, what is the significance of this uh, gathering and what transpired from it? So I, I am really, really excited to, to have been part of um, the process of bringing the Kigali Declaration together, both through my research and also through our work with uh, Uniting to Combat Entities who have been really pushing for the declaration. So first and foremost, it is the Kigali Declaration on Entities, not the London Declaration on Entities. That tells you something, because what it means is the African countries where these diseases are endemic. So for example, Nigeria has the highest burden, something like 150 million people are affected. Um, Rwanda has a huge burden of these diseases. These countries are taking ownership of the control of these diseases. They are setting the agenda, they are setting the strategy, and they are committing uh, funding as well as support to controlling these diseases through their leadership, so not just in their countries, but also bringing the rest of the African countries together. So the first and foremost big change from the London Declaration to the Kigali Declaration is that 
This is now country-owned and country-led from the endemic countries in Africa. The second thing is, of course, we have the new uh, NTD roadmap from the WHO from 2021 to 2030. And the, uh, the new Kigali Declaration will be aiming to deliver that. Given that these diseases are neglected and they affect <laughs> certain group of people, whose responsibility is it to step up effort? Was there a lack of political will? What will change this time around? It's everyone's responsibility, and I'll tell you why. It's the person who is exposed to these diseases. It's their responsibility to take up any intervention. We need to, sh to ensure that there is compliance. When you have an intervention to control the diseases, it's your responsibility to then take up that intervention. It is also your responsibility to seek for health-seeking behavior. You should be pestering your local clinics, your local representation. We have this disease. We recognize we have it. And we are taking responsibility for our own health. And the Kigali Declaration provides for that. Then it is the national government's responsibility to be investing in the control of these diseases in their own countries for their own populations because health underpins any progress for most of the sustainable development goals. It is also the responsibility of countries where these diseases are not endemic. And this is very important for global security. COVID has shown us that you need a health system that is well equipped for surveillance of disease. So if you have any emerging disease, you need a health system that can respond to this. African health systems cannot respond with surveillance and real-time um, diagnosis of any emerging disease when the health system is burdened with looking after neglected tropical diseases. If we release those resources, release th that funding, it strengthens the whole African health system. And the strong African health system is critical for global security. So that's why I say this is everybody's responsibility to ensure that we have functioning health systems, we have people who are working, um, they're able to produce because their health is good, and um, we're taking up all the interventions that are there. Moving forward, where do you see the priorities to el the elimination of NTDs? First and foremost, we need to get the optimal use of the interventions that we currently have. We have uh, drugs. Let's ensure we have all the drugs that are available for everybody. Let's ensure we're accessing everybody who needs these drugs, and let's ensure that we're delivering them timely and optimally. We have other interventions. A lot of these diseases are due to poor provision of safe water and sanitation. In order for us to really stop transmission and to stop the spread of these diseases, we need to improve um, the water, sanitation, and hygiene. We have perfectly good ways of doing this. We've done this in, in many countries. So let's deploy these, let's invest in these. And then, of course, finally, let's ensure we've got the health education and the health messaging out there for the affected communities. Professor Francisca Mutapi, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That was Professor Francisca Mutapi, Professor in Global Health Infection and Immunity and Co-Director of the Global Health Academy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. 
Now, the global nonprofit Carter Center based in Atlanta says it has recorded the lowest number of Guinea worm parasite infections in human history in 2021, bringing it very close to the goal of eradication. VOA's Kane Faraboth reports on this milestone. As he faced the world during a 2015 press conference, grappling with a potentially fatal cancer diagnosis, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter said he had one more goal to fulfill. Like for the last guinea worm to die before I do. Over six years later, Carter, now 97, has battled through brain cancer and other health setbacks to see his Carter Center mark a historic milestone in the fight to rid the world of the once neglected tropical disease the global nonprofit began dedicating resources to fighting in 1986. We are pleased to mention that there are only 14 human cases in the world uh, through the end of 2021 and no log so far in 2022. That's the lowest number of recorded cases in human history, says Adam Weiss, the director of the Carter Center's Guinea Worm Eradication Program. The milestone places the effort close to being only the second disease ever eradicated. So every year, more than 3 million people were suffering from Guinea Worm. And today, to be able to say only 14 human beings on a planet of, what, almost 8 billion people is just remarkable. Remarkable in part, says Weiss, because the 14 cases in 2021 is also a 48% drop from the previous year, a time when the world has been dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. The national programs have remained almost entirely operational throughout the pandemic. Weiss says much of the guinea worm eradication effort in endemic countries isn't staffed by foreign nationals, but instead relies on local villagers and community members to manage prevention efforts at local water sources. We built a formidable force at the community level. We ensure that we have a program which is anchored within the structure of the community. And, and, and uh, we work every day to ensure there is ownership at the community level. McCoy Lagora is the director of the Guinea worm eradication effort with the Ministry of Health in South Sudan, a country that at one point accounted for almost 80% of global infections. The effort to fight Guinea worm prevailed over civil war and sporadic unrest in South Sudan to reach the point of only four recorded cases in 2021. And I want to believe that uh, if we can do it in South Sudan, it can be done everywhere. Mali, Ethiopia, Chad, and parts of its border area with Cameroon are the last strongholds of guinea worm on the planet. But while the effort has mostly met success, it has also experienced setbacks. What we've seen in the last 10 years or so is infections occurring in domestic animals. And so we did experience a, a setback to the global campaign in 2012 when we started to see that occurring. But only a small number of cases were recorded in animals in 2021, and the fight against the worm seems to be nearing the finish line. As the number of guinea worm cases globally dwindles, President Carter's age advances. And Adam Weiss says everyone involved in the effort would like to see the goal of zero cases reached soon. Of course, I would like nothing more than to see it happen in his lifetime. You know, President Carter as our big boss, but also as, as our North Star in, in trying to help keep us focused, it adds a layer of, of pressure and also a layer of responsibility that we all have. Kane Fairbaum, VOA News, Chicago. You are listening to Health Chat on The Voice of America. It is time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Health Chat. 
The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved recently the first injectable medication to lower the risk of HIV transmission sexually for pre-exposure prevention or PrEP. A pre-tude, the new drug is administered every two months as an alternative to HIV prevention pills such as Truvada, which have been shown to reduce the risk of HIV by 99% when taken daily. Apritude was found to be more likely to reduce HIV than daily oral medications in two FDA trials analyzing its safety and efficacy. For more insights, I spoke with Dr. Kimberly Smith, Head of Research and Development for Vive Healthcare. Cabotegavir is an integrase inhibitor and it is um, unique in that it is a long-acting uh, integrase inhibitor. It's dosed every two months and so we have studied it both as a treatment in combination with another long-acting agent called ropivirine. And that two-drug combination has successfully uh, kept HIV under control through a number of phase three studies and is approved in many, many places. We're also developing cabotegavir alone as a drug for HIV prevention. Those studies showed uh, that long-acting cabotegavir was superior to daily oral Truvada for HIV prevention. So in the women's study, 084, it was nine times better than Truvada. In the 083 study, it was three times better than Truvada, in both cases meeting a statistical superiority. Truvada is reported to be 99% effective at preventing HIV through sex. How can you go over 99% if that's true? Juvada uh, is reportedly 99% effective if you take it as prescribed, if you're adherent to it all the time. Efficacy is ultimately how effective is the drug and how well do people take it. Because cabotegavir is really directly observed therapy, you come into the clinic, you get a shot, and then you don't have to think about it anymore for the next two months. So it doesn't require you to remember to take a pill every day. And so that's how you're able to, 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 to demonstrate that much effectiveness. What populations were you able to sample with the clinical trials? For the OA4 study, which was the, the cisgender women study, it was done in sub-Saharan Africa, areas where there's really high rates of HIV infection, particularly in young women. And so it was exactly the population who potentially could benefit the most. In terms of cost, what are we looking at? How available will this be? It is our intention to make cabotegavir available uh, in these least developed countries, particularly focused on PrEP, to make sure that we can allow this medicine to have the game-changing impact that we think that it can have. Speaking of PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, do you see this as a critical tool? How much of a game-changer is this? I think it's a huge game-changer. And so uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, basically empowering particularly young women to control their own uh, vulnerability, despite the presence of condom, despite the presence of oral uh, Truvada for PrEP, there continue to be these uh, disturbing numbers. We need to have different tools. And we think this is an important tool because potentially it could be combined with with contraception. So if you could potentially get a young woman in for long-acting contraception, along with long-acting HIV prevention, hopefully you can really make a big difference in the likelihood that she becomes HIV infected in the future. 
something like this, where people will get an injection for two months and have the sense of safety, uh, is there a concern that maybe there will be complacency? I think if we can combine widespread availability of long-acting PrEP along with optimizing treatment, making sure that, you know, everyone knows their status. And so if you are living with HIV, that you're on treatment and that people who are HIV negative, but sexually active, that they would be able to be on, on, on some form of PrEP. We think that adding this new tool will make a big difference. We've seen improvements in the rates of new HIV cases because more people are on treatment, but it hasn't decreased enough to get us to the end of the epidemic. What sorts of uh, side effects have been observed during the clinical trials? Most common side effect uh, is injection site reaction, so soreness at the site where you get the shot that you know typically lasts for a few days and then resolves. What are the plans in making this readily available to populations around the world, including regions like Sub-Saharan Africa? So we have filed with regulatory agencies around the world. We've already filed in South Africa, for example. We will file in all of the countries that uh, participated in the 083 and 084 studies. Our intent is to get all of those countries uh, filed with those regulatory agencies before the end of 22. It is our commitment to do everything that we can to work with the health authorities and with health ministries to make the drugs available. You know, we spent so much time talking about COVID in the last couple of years. It's almost like we've forgotten about the HIV uh, pandemic. It's still here. In the U.S., for example, there were hundreds of thousands less HIV tests done in 2020 in comparison to 2019. So that means people are less likely to get diagnosed or it's just delayed. And that means they're more likely to progress with their own disease. And they're also potentially more likely to transmit to others. Dr. Kimberly Smith, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Kimberly Smith, Head of Research and Development for Vive Healthcare. Now to South Sudan, where a member of parliament from Lake State's Quebec County in the National Legislative Assembly is raising concern about an outbreak of a suspected unknown disease in the country. Joel Ngomkek Daniel says at least five children have died of the disease with whooping cough-like symptoms, while thousands of others are suffering from similar symptoms. Jacob Akwokpir, the Lake State Health Minister, says he dispatched a team to the area to assess the situation. Winnie Sirino reports from Juba. National MP Joel Nomgek Daniel of Chubet County says he has spoken to several residents of the county who have confirmed the suspected outbreak. In Chubet County, in Ngapayam, the majority of children have been affected by a certain disease which, which appears to be Hoping cough. People, children are coughing at the same time, are vomiting, and there are rashes on them. It is like also a measles or something. This is a kind of a strange disease. The hospital in Agangrial is full of children. Daniel says he shared the information with the Relief and Rehabilitation Commission as well as the World Health Organization in Lake State, capital Rombek. He says similar cases have been reported over the past week in Pangor, Payam and Chapchap Payam of Chibet County. When I asked people who, who are around, they told me that it, it was there for the last seven days. It started seven days ago. It is almost the whole, the whole village in Agangrial 
which many children they have not told me exactly the i mean the exact number but they told me the hospital is full of children so i was following up to give me the accurate information about children but that area gang gang which is in ngafayam has almost 20 thousand people around. Daniel says residents told him at least five children have died due to the suspected disease outbreak. He is appealing to health officials to respond quickly to the matter. That one is the emergency. We need first to the medical team like the government in coordination with the World Health Organization should dispatch a team to go and, and put the condition under arrest. And at the same time, the media, if they have, uh, if there is possibility, they can go and cover and make a full operating report. And we shall follow up here. After that, if it is measles uh, or dissolving cough, like this is a kind of, which affects children, then they should be vaccinated. Lake State Health Minister Jacob Akwoch-Pir says he still does not have accurate information about the problem, but says the state government has dispatched a team to Aganrial Payam to assess the situation and collect samples for laboratory tests. When South Sudan in Focus contacted Dr. Wamala Joseph, the country preparedness office at World Health Organization, he referred us to Dr. John Ramono, the Director of Preventive Health Care Services at the National Minister of Health. Saltadon in Focus contacted Ramunu, but he declined to comment. For VOA News, I am Winnie Serino in Juba. That's all for this edition of Health Chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying Health Chat. I'm your host, Lino Hamudu in Washington with producer Dan Brown. Until next time, take care, stay safe and strive to make every day a healthy day. This is VOA News. Via remote, I'm Jeff Custer.